Um, so we've been here in this uh, uh, eight week now, uh, eight week journey, uh, going through the the Bible. Um, it's all about Jesus. Uh, we looked at uh, we've looked at, at at several things so far. We've looked. You can turn on the lights for that here. Uh, we looked at several things. Um, we looked first at um, how God created the world and he made the world and he said it was good. And as long as everything is good and in working order, then as long as our relationship with God is in working order, then all in the world will be will be well. Our relationships with each other would be well. But then we saw how um, Adam and Eve, the first people on earth, made a choice to rebel against God, to rebel against the king. And into this perfect kingdom, sin was introduced, darkness was introduced, pain and suffering was introduced. And we saw ripple effects of that throughout the first family where the first two children born to a woman, Cain and Abel, had sibling rivalry. It was actually a one-sided thing where Cain ended up killing his brother Abel. And then from that place, generations down the line, the sixth generation um, after that, um, there's a guy named Lamech who married two women. And then he killed this young man, and then he began boasting and singing about it. And from there, we just see this downward spiral, this quick unraveling of the world as God created it into this, this terrible... Like when I was little, I used to like taking things apart. So I, would, um, I played baseball, and so I would take the stitches off of it, and I would take off the rawhide cover, and there would be this ball. And I would pull the string until, you know, at, at, when you got to the end of it, you held up the string. All of this would fall off and be this little hollow ball. That's kind of what's happening with the world. Is everything is unraveling quickly, quickly, quickly into just a complete state of degeneration. And so when we come to the Bible today, and the passage we're coming to today, we're going to talk about a famous, famous account of an event that actually happened many years ago involving a flood, involving an ark, involving a man named Noah. It's a very, very famous story. In fact, there's a movie coming out in March of next year called Noah. Has anyone heard of this movie, Noah, by Paramount Pictures? It's... um. I, I don't think it's, I mean, it's got Russell Crowe, Emma Watson, Jennifer Connelly, it's um, Anthony Hopkins. The, the cast is great, but um, I saw a trailer of it, and it strays very far from the biblical picture of what Noah's Ark and the flood really, of what really happened in that time. It's, it's a story that, it's an account that's so popular that um, pretty much most kids, if you've grown up in church, you definitely know the story. If you haven't grown up in church, then you probably know the story. But it's been depicted in a lot of ways. So I want to show some pictures of what... Um, people's renderings of Noah's Ark um, looks like. You can cut the lights here. Um, first picture, <laughs> Noah's Ark. Beautiful. It, just in case no one knew, it's nicely labeled Noah's Ark. Everyone is happy. Noah hanging out. His wife is on the other side with her pet monkey. Uh, the only, I think the only thing that's scared up there is the uh, alligator. And then the monkey up there is looking around. Why is my monkey husband cheating on me with that woman? <laughs> Okay, next picture. Okay, here's another one. Not as sunny, not as bright, but it's pretty cool. Look at that. Yeah. Yeah, Finding Nemo cast. Turtle's like, wait for me. I don't want to get destroyed. And Very cool, cute. Uh, Noah's beard, stylish. Okay, next picture. Yeah, they look like they're on a <laughs> sightseeing. Look at, the, look at the bunny up there. Whee! Right, sliding down. They look like they're whale watching, right? They're all like, and then the uh, squirrels up there with the acorn. The lion, yeah, lion. <laughs> Looks Asian. Okay, next picture. <laughs> all right, this would be, you know, great arc, except that stupid woodpecker. And Noah's frustrated, and this guy's poking holes. And look at the monkey up there. He's like, there he is, get him. <laughs> really fun. 
That's what a lot of us think of when we think of Noah's Ark. Um, sadly, uh, probably not the most accurate picture of the story, the biblical account of what happened. Let's say you can turn off the. I think this is more along the lines of what it probably looked like. This awful flood, you've got people on the bottom drowning, one rock calling out for the ark that's sailing away. The oceans rise, thunders roar, they call out to no avail. Next, next one shows a similar thing, famous picture by a guy named Gustave Doré. One last family, the kids, the last ones to survive as husband and wife, mom and dad are being ripped away by the waters. The next one, the fear and the terror. And folks, as the flood of judgment, the waters of judgment come, fall upon the earth. I think that's a more accurate picture of what is happening in the account of, of Noah's Ark. It's a kid's story that every kid knows, but it's actually quite frightening. And it's not that kid-friendly when you go into the text. Did you know that um, archaeologists have found, anthropologists have found that in over 300 cultures, there is a tale told centuries ago of a flood that came and destroyed the earth. 300 different cultures. North America, obviously South America, Central America, but places like Africa, India, Greenland. Do you know Greenland actually has people? Yeah, Greenland has a story, an account that's been told through the ages. China, Greece. There's this one uh, pictograph, 2500 BC in China, that shows a picture of eight people in a boat and a flood taking over the earth. Another one in India. Indians tell the story, uh, not Native Americans, but India, people of India, tell the story of eight people who were saved from a flood because one man was righteous amongst his generation. What does this mean? If all these cultures, some of the, a lot of them have had no contact with the Bible, with Christianity or Judaism, and some of them have had these, these uh, accounts from long before missionaries ever set foot in their country, what does it mean? And here's what it means, that every one of these cultures understand that there is a historical event that actually took place that their people have told about through the ages in order to preserve the memory of something that actually happened years ago. And what we see starting in Genesis chapter 6 is the biblical account of what really happened by inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the pen of Moses. We're going to look at the account of, of, of Noah's Ark, and I'm not gonna, we're not going to throw it up there because it's a lot of verses. We have four chapters to go through today. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it to Genesis 6. We're going to flip through a lot of passages. I, I know that some of us don't have Bibles, and so for that reason, we can throw it up there on the screen. But if you've got a Bible, you don't ever go into war without your sword. You don't ever go into war without your machine gun, without your weapons. You've got to have your Bible when you come to church. What I mean... Some of you have it on your phone. That's cool. But isn't there no greater sound in all the earth than the pages of the Bible turn? Ah, listen to that. Ah, lovely. So beautiful. So we have a lot of ground to cover. We're going to hit over 100 years in the few moments that we've had, four chapters in the time that we've got here. 
But we're going to um, start Genesis chapter 6. Um, we're going to start in verse 5 and talk about just kind of the situation here. Remember um, last week, we talked about how the world is divided into two, right? the seed of Cain and the seed of Seth. Cain's line, the line of the serpent that would be turned away from God, and then the line of Seth who would call in the name of the Lord God. And it delineates that in uh, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, talks about that godly line of Seth, and it gets to Noah at the end of all that, and the degeneration and the sin, the wickedness had exploded. Chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Okay, we're going to pause here for a second. The first thing that I want to say is God heart God's heart breaks over the wickedness in the world. Okay, so the wickedness in the world, God doesn't just look at it and say, okay, that's pretty bad, but his heart breaks over that. Verse 5, listen to, listen to the explanation of the people in the time of Noah. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. It doesn't say most inclinations of the thoughts of his heart was kind of evil some of the time. It says every inclination of the heart of humanity was only evil all the time. It is a complete corruption of their mind, of their hearts. And, the, and then it's, it, it says that they were filled with violence and the Lord was grieved. If you jump down to uh, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence. Because of them, I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So you've got the the, the stage is set. All wickedness all around, and God says, I'm going to have to restart. We're going to restart all this stuff. We're going to get rid of everything, and we're going to begin again. Do you remember the formula of creation when God said it was good? It says God saw, and it was good. That's the formula of creation, the way that God made it. God saw, it was good. The formula for sin, Eve saw that it was good, but it wasn't what God said was good. He said this is actually bad, the tree. Formula for creation, God saw, and it was good. It was good. It was very good. Eve saw it was good, and she fell into sin. Look at what it says here in verse in verse, uh, verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness had become. Then in verse 12, God saw how corrupt the earth had become. Right? So it is a dichot- it's a stark contrast from the good world that God made it. Now God looks upon the world and he sees it's corrupt and it's violent. These words for corrupt and violent, it, it's, it's kind of a, an analogy. It's kind of an illustration of a rotting foul-smelling object, right? Something that is rotten beyond being able to be salvaged. He's saying this is the condition of the world. It has become so degenerate that 
there's nothing more that can be done at this point because the thoughts of their heart was only evil all of the time. How will he get their attention? What will he do? How will he rescue a world? Remember, the seed of the, uh, of, of the woman was supposed to run through the human race, and yet everybody corrupt all the time. And he looks at the, at the condition of the world that he made good, and he sees it's completely filled with rotting stuff. And it is foul, and it is awful. When I was um, in college, I lived in an apartment. I lived on the bottom floor of an apartment. My friends lived on the top floor. And I had a, a guy that I lived with who was super clean, right? very clean. Every day he was wiping down tables and wiping off the coffee table and all kinds. So our, our, our place was immaculate. Upstairs, there was a group of guys. Uh, some of my buddies lived up there. They were not clean. Um, people would, would be hanging out at their place, and we'd get a knock on our door and say, can we use your bathroom? <laughs> You're like, why? And like, oh, we were hanging out at, at Sam's place, and we needed to, to use the bathroom, because, and it was filthy up there, so they came down to our place. Not only was their bathroom like that, but their kitchen was like that also. So one day we were eating upstairs in their place, and uh, it, was, it was filthy. I mean, but they had ordered food. We were eating, uh, and after we had finished eating, just kind of left around, and then we went. We're watching TV. We're studying, and at the end of the night, the guys went in to sleep, and I was going downstairs. I walked through the kitchen, and I was like, well, I should put the food away. So I was trying to put the food away in the fridge, but there was no room in the refrigerator. And so I said, well, let me try and make some space, and I was kind of fiddling around, and I saw in the back of the refrigerator there was a, a carton of milk. And so I, I looked at the date on the carton, and that junk had expired six months earlier. I was like, I don't think they're going to want this. So I pulled it out from the back, and I opened it up, and I started pouring it down the drain. And it was no longer liquid. Like It was, it was like pouring tofu out of a milk container. It was like, <laughs> it was like, like glopping out. And I was like, oh, my God. It was a na- I, thinking about it, I want to gag. I want to throw it. It was so nasty. And it was this foul-smelling odor. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I took it. I stirred it. I said, oh, milkshake. And I drank it. No, I didn't do that. Why? Because it, this has been so awful, so rotten, so beyond the ability to salvage that it just remained there. It would just get worse and worse and worse and worse. The only thing that could be done was for this to be disposed of. That's kind of the language that God is using here. In fact, when he says the inclination, every inclination of their heart was only evil all the time, he's saying this is how rotten they had become. He's saying this is the progression that's happening. They've killed their own family member. They've killed other people. They've just compl- gone just this downward spiral into greater and greater degeneration. He says if it remains this way, it will only get worse and worse and worse. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. These people, knowing their hearts, he's saying, they're just going to kill each other. And so in bringing a flood to judge the earth, he's saying, I will give them what, is, what they're going to do to each other anyways. I'm just going to speed up that process. That's what God's saying. And so this is what God's doing. And so he says to Noah, this is what I'm going to do. But as he says it, as he says it, I mean, you can hear, you can hear the I- emotion as he's, as he's talking. The Lord was grieved, verse 6, that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. You think God kind of glosses over the sin of the world? And God just kind of says, oh, you know, happens, they're people. When people are taken advantage of, 
people are made fun of. Can, can he just kind of turn a blind eye and say, well, it's just not, not a big deal. They're just, just one person over there. Can God really do that? The Father's heart really do that? Do you believe that when you sin against your friend, against your parents, against your spouse, against your children, against your neighbor, do you feel the aching, breaking, painful heart of God over the wickedness of our hearts, over the wickedness of our lives? I know we all say, yeah, when I sin, it hurts me. But what if we saw how much it hurts God? That God breaks, that God weeps, that God's heart is broken over the sin. How bad does it have to get for him to say, I regret that I have made these people. How bad does it have to get? I remember talking, um, sitting at Olive Garden across from one of the parents of our youth. And she was just pleading, can you do something about my, my son? He's just so far out there and I worry about him and he's into drugs and he's into all kinds of things and illicit behavior. He doesn't come home at night anymore. Can you please do something about it? And she pleads and she says, I can't stop. I can't stop thinking about him. A heart just filled with, with brokenness. And then she was telling me about a, a, another mother that she knew. I guess this, her son is hardcore into drugs into heavy stuff destructive stuff dropped out of school all kinds of things and I remember looking at her and say well I mean what is she does she doesn't she want to give up on him she said how can a mother give up on her child how can she give up as much as it breaks her heart, how can a mother give up on her child? So how bad does it have to get for a parent to say, you know what, I wish I never had them. I wish that we hadn't had this child. But this is the state of the wickedness on the earth that caused God to say, my heart is broken because of the pain that they are causing to one another. And they're going to continue doing this. And if left unchecked, it will get worse and worse and worse. God's heart is not delighting in the death of people. God's heart does not delight in the judgment of people. And his heart is broken and he weeps over this. Walter Wangren is an author and he, he writes about how um, he had this seven-year-old son, Matthew, who loved comic books. And, and Matthew loved them so much that sometimes he would go to the library, go to the drugstore, and he would steal library books. And his dad would catch him. He'd tell him, Matthew, you shouldn't do this. I want you to go back to the store and return it. He would do it. But this pattern became habitual. Right? Kept on stealing uh, comic books. Kept on stealing them from different places. So his dad said, I need to do something to tell him that he can't be doing this. And so the next time Matthew stole comic books, his dad brought him into his office. And he said, son, I've never spanked you before. But today I need to do it in order for you to know that this kind of behavior is not acceptable. 
And so he put him on his bottom, on his, on his leg, and he spanked his bottom five times. And he saw Matthew's face, and he knew that Matthew had tears in his eyes. He didn't want to look up at his dad. So his dad said, I'm going to give you a few moments to think about it. And then he walked out. And as soon as he closed the door, the father broke down and started weeping. Started weeping over the sin and over all that had happened. And he regained his composure. He went to the bathroom. He washed his face. He walked in. He gave Matthew a hug, and they walked out together. Years later, little Matthew had grown up, and he was riding with his mom in the car. And they were talking about reminiscing about stories of old. Matthew told his mom about that day in dad's office. And he said, from that day, right, that day was the last day I ever stole anything from anyone ever again. And I never will. And his mom said, spanking really did a number on you, huh? I said, no. The said, when the door closed, I heard dad crying. From that moment on, I never wanted to do that again. What if we believed that God weeps over the sin in our lives and over the pain that it causes us and the pain that it causes the people around us, the people of his affection, the people that he loves? This is what God is saying necessarily needed to happen. Wickedness, his heart is broken, but he says we need to do this. The second thing that we're going to see here then, if you look in verse 8, so the question is, if every inclination of every heart is only evil all the time, and God needs to bring judgment on sin, then the question is, what's going to happen to the seed of the promise? Do you remember? God promised that one day the seed of the woman is going to come and he's going to be the savior of the world. What's going to happen? The second thing that we see here is that God alone can rescue us from our sin. Okay, God alone can rescue us from our sin. If you look at what it says in verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now the question is, why Noah? And most of us would go to verse 9 and say, because he was righteous and blameless in his time. But could it be that the way that God works today is the same way that he worked back then? In other words, if we today are not saved because of anything good in us, then why in the world would God save someone in those days because of something good in him? You see, when it says, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Literally what it says is Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You see, verse 8 is the reason for verse 9. Look at, look, look at what it says. Verse 8 is the reason for verse 9, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Therefore, he was a righteous man and blameless, and he walked with God. He wasn't, he wasn't graced by God because he was righteous, blameless. He was just like everybody else. He was just like everybody else. Every desire of his heart was only evil all the time. But God, in his mercy and in his love, in his electing divine love, said, you know what? I will give grace 
to know it is by grace you and I have been saved, that Noah was saved not by works. It is the gift of God, right? It's only by faith, not by works. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. Noah had no reason to boast, just like you and I have no reason to boast. God didn't choose. This is what we learn in school, isn't it? In Sunday school, because Noah was a good boy. He was a good man. God saved him. That's not the way it is. You see, Noah's Ark isn't a children's story. It's highly, highly, highly filled with theological depth and meaning. Noah wasn't chosen because he did everything right. He was chosen because God is good and he's faithful and he's loving and he's gracious. God's riches at the expense of someone else, not God's riches because Noah did it right. The same way that you and I are not saved because we did anything right. God graced Noah. And because Noah found grace, he was able to be righteous and blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. You understand, these words righteous and blameless don't mean sinless. And especially in the Old Testament, Noah is not a defiance of the idea of original sin, that we're all born sinners. He's not. Noah was just like everybody else, just like all the other wicked people that deserve judgment. But he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And when grace captured him, he surrendered his heart and he became righteous. When it says righteous, it means that he hated sin and he trusted God. This is what righteous in the Old Testament means. It means that he hated sin and he trusted God, turning away from sin. It doesn't mean that he was sinless. It doesn't mean that he was perfect. It doesn't mean that he was faultless. It simply means that he hated his sin and he trusted in God, turning away from his sin. And when it says he's blameless, especially it says he's blameless. Where is it? In verse 9, among the people of his time, it's saying that Noah stood out from amongst all of the people. If you're a child of God, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about like a Christian because I go to church. We say this all the time, right? Going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than you sitting in a garage makes you a car. Right? You come into church doesn't make you a Christian any more than you go into Five Guys Burger Shop makes you a hamburger. You coming into this church building doesn't make you a Christian. The, the worldly definition of a, I'm a church-going person, therefore I'm a Christian, is that's basically saying, because I fixed myself up and made myself right, therefore I'm acceptable in the eyes of God. That doesn't fly on Judgment Day. The only thing that's going to fly is that I recognize that I'm an awful sinner. I did nothing to deserve your goodness, but because you set your grace upon me, the wonderful cross... Because you gave your life for me, Jesus. That's the only way I can enter into glory. And if that's genuinely taking root in our lives, then we will change and we will be different. We will be seen as one standing up as different in our generation. This is the way the gospel works. This is the way the grace of God works. Because Noah could not rescue himself. He didn't say, yo, everybody is messed up. God save me. He didn't say that. He was just like them, and God set his grace upon him and called him out of darkness and into his marvelous light so that he could see and that he could shine that light. And shine that light he did because God looked at him, and starting in verse 14, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms, and then he goes on and talks about the dimensions of this ark. Why? Because Noah's not a shipbuilder. He has no idea how to make a boat. So God tells him exactly what he needs to do. And then it says at the end of the chapter, verse 22, Noah did everything just as God 
commanded him. And the commentators would say, I mean, this is a massive undertaking, 150 yards. This is a football field and a half. Massive in its breadth, uh, 75 feet, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. He didn't have tractors. He didn't have. So people say when God says, I mean, if you read the rest of it, I would encourage you just read uh, Genesis 6 through through 9 when you go home today sometime this week. 120 years to build this thing. And as he's building this boat, he's going into the woods to chop down wood and he's hauling it into the desert area where he is. I think people are asking, Noah, what you doing? What are you doing, Noah? Like I'm building a boat. What the heck is a boat? Something that sails on water. Where's the water, Noah? And as this edifice begins being built, people are like, he's still at it. 50 years, 60 years. He's still working. What is he doing? Rain is going to come. A flood is going to come. Everyone's going to be wiped out. What 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 are the people thinking? Crazy old Noah. It's like crazy old Maurice. You remember him from Beauty and the Beast? Comes running in. This is Belle's dad. Comes running into the tavern. Hey, he's got her. He's got her. He's going to kill her. Who? Belle. Beast has this ugly, hideous beast. Monstrous beast. They're like, where is he taking her? Into his dungeon. Silence. Ah, crazy old Maurice. Always good for a laugh. It's like, we don't have a minute to lose. We've got to go now. We've got to go now. We've got to go now. Crazy old Maurice. So we'll help you. We'll help you, Maurice. And so the thugs of the tavern pick him up and they throw him out. That's Noah. We don't have a minute to lose. We've got to go. You've got to believe in what I'm saying. You got to believe in me. You got to believe in the God. He's coming. He's going to this. You remember what, what, what our ancestors talked about this God. He's coming. You got to come. And as they built the ark, they're laughing at him. Noah's kids, Shem, Ham, Japheth, go to school. Everybody's like, your dad's still making that stupid boat? And y'all, your old man's going crazy. His wife, Noah's wife, everybody makes fun of her. She goes to. Whatever she does with her friends, they have their sewing class or their Pilates class. What's your husband up to? Still making that boat? Still making that boat, huh? (laughs) Crazy old Noah. That's crazy old Noah. But for 120 years as he's making this boat, people are hearing that they need to turn away from sin. They need to turn away from wickedness. Because God is going to rescue those who believe, those who have faith. And Noah's building this ark. His sons are presumably, we don't know if they're helping him or not. He's saying, the rains are going to come. The flood is going to come. You got to get on board. You got to get on board. And everyone's laughing at him. Verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Then you turn to chapter 7, verse 4. 
boat has finally been completed. No one is responding to Noah's pleas. Verse 4, seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I've made. Look, if you, if you knew that there's seven days left, seven days left, and I don't know, like the movies, a massive flood is going to come and wipe everything out, or meteors going to come and wipe everything out. If you knew, like beyond the shadow of a doubt, seven days left, what are you going to, what do you do? What do you do? And you go knocking, this is what I would, I'd go knocking on doors. I'd be pounding down houses telling people, you got to come to Jesus. You got to turn, you got to repent. You got to, you just, there's no other way. Seven days. And no one bothers to say, maybe, maybe I'll go with you. Okay, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't rain, then that's fine. Do you think at least somebody would say, okay, I'll give it a day and see what happens? But nobody. What if we knew that our loved ones had seven days left? Because a lot of times, man, we live as if we've got all day long. Genesis chapter 5, we, skip, we didn't read this. You know why? Because it's boring. I'll tell you why it's boring. Because it's a genealogy. And yet, if, you get, if you're this week, you're laying in bed, you can't fall asleep here. Let me, let me help you. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. Let me, sorry, I'm speaking. Let me, let me speak with a little bit more excitement. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters altogether. Adam lived 930 years, then he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he became the father of Enosh. After he became the father of Enosh, Seth, and it goes on and on and on and on. What's the point? Why is this even in here? Every person, right, it's just mundane, just come, you rise up on the surface, and then you die. Next person comes up, and then you die. Next person comes up, and then you die. Here's the point. Every one of us is going to die. And these cats are living all these years, and people are like, well, I got 800 years left to live. I got 50 years left to live. And that's our added. We know better than them. 70 years. But we're like, you know what? I'm just a high school student. I'm just 15. I'm going to live it up. I got 50 years left, and then I turned to Jesus. I remember hearing Mark's testimony when he, was, when he was confirmed, and he said it was the death of one of his friends that got him to think, you know what, life is short. We don't have all day. Because you don't know that your time could be seven days, and that's it. We live as if we've got all of our lives to make a decision. Hey, when I'm, when I'm old, when I'm gray, then I'll make a decision for Jesus. But I'm ready to live it up. I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going to have my pleasure. I'm going to play the field. I'm going to do all this stuff and have a great time. The message of Noah's Ark is that you have no idea how short your time is and when your time, when your number is going to be called. Because a day of reckoning is coming, not only for you, but for the people that you love. For your friends, for your teachers, for your parents, for your children. If you, if you, if you look at what it, uh, it says, verse, uh, verse 6. 
Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth and Noah and his sons and his wife, sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood and then jumped down, verse 16. The animals going in, male and female, every living thing God had commanded Noah. Get what it says at the end. And the Lord shut him in. Right, Noah didn't close the door. He, he had, it wasn't up to him. And the people who believed walked in, and God shut the door behind them. As soon as they did, nobody else was able to walk in. Imagine, think about this. You're outside the boat. That first drop of rain begins to fall. What are you thinking? I'm like, oh, snap. And then it comes, 30 minutes. Right? No big deal. That's kind of how it is here in Florida. Rain's half hour, it stops. But it keeps on coming. Keeps on coming. And it keeps on coming. And it keeps on, and all of a sudden you're like, maybe crazy old Noah wasn't that crazy after all. People tell you you're crazy because you spend most of your weekend at church, because you spend most of your free time in house church at youth meetings. You spend most of your money serving people, cooking food for them in order that they might know Jesus. They say you're crazy. What's wrong with you? As soon as the rain comes, people begin to realize, goodness, maybe what he was talking about for all these years was true. They start running for the ark, start screaming Noah's name, and as loud as they cry, as much as he tries, he can't open it because the Lord had shut them in. Because a day of reckoning had come for them. And a day of reckoning is coming for all of our people, for every single person who's ever lived. We're not going to live forever. See, the other part of the genealogy, people rise, people fall, people rise, people fall. The only people that didn't die, Enoch walked with God. It says Noah walked with God. The whole point of that genealogy would say, if you just go on living, and no matter how long you live, you're going to die and that's it. But you walk with God, then you will live forever. You will be saved and you will be spared. Are you walking with God? Are the people that you love walking with God? There's a sense of urgency driving. And then what you're inside of the ark with your family. I mean, thank God that Noah led his family well enough that his family believed and trusted. It says nothing about their faith, but it says by his faith they were rescued. You're inside the ark and you hear people crying out to you. You hear people yelling your name, saying, open the door, it's me. I sat next to you in math class. Open the door. People yelling and screaming, and as the rain starts pounding against the side of the ark, people banging, and the bodies being thrown up against the ark. Realize that sin is nothing to be trifled with. The judgment waters of God come and fall. Probably inside the ark, they were scared to death. They wouldn't make it. But the promise of God was sure. See, salvation for Noah and his friend and his family wasn't based on what they felt. They were saved because they were in the ark. Same way, we're not saved because of our feelings. 
And we're safe because of Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Put your trust in him. Your feelings will ebb and flow up and down, but you're not safe because of your feelings any more than Noah wasn't safe because of his feelings. They were scared. They doubted probably, but they were in the ark because the ark, they were saved because the ark kept them safe. It's Jesus. He alone can rescue. He alone can rescue. But we need to step into the ark. Moving into chapter 8, flood comes, destruction, all this stuff happens. At the end of chapter 8, God makes a promise. And the last thing we're going to see is that God will stop at nothing to be faithful to his promise. Chapter 8, verse 21. After uh, Noah, buddies, after all this time, right, water is received. Many days are still in the ark. Finally, they realize it's safe to come out. God tells them to come out. First thing they do. They worship the Lord, bringing a burnt offering. Verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures. God makes this promise. Why? What's happening here? If you see, if you can can kind of, again, read through Genesis 6 through 9, you'll see a lot of similarities between Adam and Noah. Both of them entered into a new world that came out of a watery chaos. Okay, this is the first thing that we see. There's a lot of similarities here. Both of them were said they were made in the image of God. Immediately, any reader who does literary literary analysis is understanding the parallels here. Both of them to whom God said, be fruitful and multiply, take care of the earth. Both of them were workers of the ground. Both of them were said to have walked with God. So what is happening here? In the flood, God was uncreating. And then with with what he's doing, he's pushing restart and he's recreating and saying, Noah, let's do it again. Okay, let's do it again. Let's try it again. All the wickedness is gone. Grace rescued. Let's do it again. This is, this is where we're starting. Okay, A new beginning, a fresh start. So everything has been wiped clean. A new day is dawning. And God says, you know what? Never again will I curse the ground. You jump into chapter 9. Um, every, you know, a lot of times we make promises. The bigger the promise we make, the more we want to have, I don't want to, don't just say it. Like, give me something. Sign a contract. Or when we're little, let's shake on it. Or cross my heart, hope to die, stick a million needles in my eye. This is what we'll... We make these different, different kinds of deals. And we need a sign when you get married. And every wedding, hold up a ring. The sign is a covenant I'm giving you. Jesus in the Last Supper when he's instituting the new covenant. The signs and the seals, the signs of the communion, the bread and the wine. What's the sign of the promise that God made here? Verse 12, chapter 9. God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. Verse 13, I set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, 
I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So what is a sign? It's a beautiful rainbow. A beautiful rainbow. The, literally, I mean, we all know what it is. It says rainbow, but the word in the original language is bow. I, I hang my bow in the sky. Literally what God is saying, I'm laying my bow down. Right? What kind of a bow? It's a bow and arrow. I'm laying it down. I'm not going to hurt you again. I'm not going to destroy you again. And I will be true to my promise. I think the next time Noah hanging out, a raindrop started to fall. Thinking back to that time. Oh, stink. But then he would remember the promise. And once the rain stopped, see a rainbow in the sky. And every time he saw it, he would say, you know what? It could have kept raining. But God stopped. Because he loves us. Because he'll be faithful to his promise. Because he'll be faithful to the covenant that he made. Every time any one of his descendants looked up at the sky, they saw a rainbow. Every time we look up at the sky and see a rainbow, we say, you know what? It could have kept on raining. But God was faithful to his promise. And Noah desperately needed to know this promise. You know why? Because he's a whole lot more like Adam than what we've seen so far. Because if you read in the very next section, Noah would do something very silly. In fact, downright sinful. He would get drunk. He would be laid naked. He'd be defiled by his children. He would curse his children. Why? Because the seed of sin still lives within human beings, even though judgment has come. And the sinful line, even though, maybe, maybe, Maybe people who knew him thought he could be the deliverer. He wasn't. He was in that line, but he wouldn't be the savior of the world. Why? Because we, we need someone better than Noah. Isn't that the whole point of this sermon series? Adam was cool, but we needed someone better. Someone who would actually pass a test about a tree in the garden. We needed a better Adam. Abel, he was great. But you know what? His blood cried out. We needed someone whose blood spoke a better word than Abel. We needed a better Abel. Noah, he was pretty good, but he was still sinful. We need a better Noah. You know what? We say, hey, you know what? Here you go. Children's in your Sunday school class. Here's Noah. He was righteous. He was blameless. That's why he was saved. Go be like Noah. Do we really want our children to be like Noah? You want your child to get drunk and lay naked and be defiled by his children? What's the point? We need someone a whole lot greater than Noah to come. And through the line of Seth, Jesus would come. Because, see, Noah survived the wrath of God. But it was Jesus who took the wrath of God upon himself. 
Why? So that you and I wouldn't have to take it ever again. See, when God hangs his bow in the sky, whenever you look at a rainbow, you realize that the rainbow hangs upward so that the arrow is pointed at himself. Here's what God is saying. I will not judge the world again with an arrow that comes down from my bow. But this is how faithful I will be. I will be so faithful that if ever someone needs to be destroyed, the arrows pointed upwards at my son. That this is how faithful I will be. I will stop at nothing in order to be faithful to the promise that I've made with you. And so Jesus, the greater Noah, took the punishment for you and for me. Just as it is in the days of Noah, it's the same with us. We've got two choices. Judgment is coming because we deserve it. Jesus is the ark that can rescue us. The question is, are we going to go into the ark? Or are we going to say crazy old whoever? Let's pray. We respond to God's word if we're in the days of Noah. All of us deserve to be wiped out by the flood. And judgment is coming and a time is coming for all of us. Maybe someone is calling for you from the ark to say, come, come into the ark. If you are a person who's outside of that ark, you have not put your trust in Jesus Christ. In a couple seconds, I'm going to give an invitation. If you want to do that, you can do that by praying, repeating a prayer after me. So if that's you, I'm going to allow you to think about that for a few moments. And then if there are others of us who are in the ark, so to speak, we're already a child of God. The people in your life who are not. people of Noah's day ignored the warning signs, his cries, his pleas, his building of the ark. There are warning signs for them also. The graying of hair, the wrinkling of skin, people dying all around. And we don't seem to take much notice of death until it happens in mass. But even when it happens in mass, we tend to forget about it very quickly, go about our own lives. There are the people in our lives with whom we need to live and pray and seek and minister with great urgency over people who are not yet in the ark. Let's pray for them. Thank God for the grace of God and let's pray for them. But if you're here today and you're not in the ark, the ark that is Jesus Christ, you haven't put your trust in him. Jesus says in a similar analogy in Revelation 3.20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens a door. Come in with him and he with me that you you understand that you are a sinner, that you've done wrong. You've hurt God and you've hurt others. You've hurt yourself and you deserve the judgment of God. But he sent his son Jesus to take the punishment for you. And you want to put your trust in him. If there's anyone like that today with the rest of us praying with our eyes closed, if there's anyone like that, you don't have to, if you've done this before, if, you pray, if you've prayed this before, you don't have to pray it again. You don't have to raise your hand again. But if for the first time you want to give your life to Christ, 
allow him to change us, to be righteous and blameless, to walk with God. If that's you, I'm just going to ask where you are. Just raise your hand just quietly from where you are. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. There's a couple of us here. Anyone else who just, I, I need Jesus in my life. I need to put my trust in him. sister and one brother in here, one male, one female. Anyone else? I need Jesus in my life. As we uh, pray together, I'm going to just pray over all of us. And if you're making this decision for the first time, just pray this prayer in your heart as I pray over us. After I conclude this prayer, we'll continue worship and our offering. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. God, all of us, myself included, am so sinful and so broken. I know my heart is wicked and it turns away from you so easily. And because of that, I've hurt many people. But I thank you that because of the promise you made and the sign in the rainbow that you are patient with me and you love me and you never give up on me thank you for this grace. I believe that you came, Jesus, to be my Savior, to rescue me from the judgment that I deserve. I pray that you would come into my heart by faith to be the forgiver, to be the Savior of my life, and to be the new master of my life. Because of your grace in me, help me to be righteous and blameless in my generation, and help me to walk with you daily the word and in prayer. And for all of us in here who have family members, friends, loved ones, teachers, colleagues, workplace, associates, fellow classmates who don't know you, Jesus, I ask that you would burn within our hearts an urgency, a longing to want to see them come to the saving knowledge of Jesus that if people choose to reject you that they would do so over our bodies. And if they choose to walk into hell, that they would choose to walk over us. But may it not be because we didn't seek. May it not be because we didn't pray. May it not be because we didn't go to them with the offer of the greatest news that the world would ever know. So help us, Jesus. Help us. We love you because you've loved us first. Thank you for rescuing us in a way that none other could. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.